All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to say we have Ian Gordon with us on this uh, next half hour or so. I do want to thank our uh, sponsors for the second hour of today's show for making this show economically viable. They are Paramount Resources and Prophecy Platinum. Well, uh, those of you who were around to listen to the start of the show uh, might have realized that Chen Lin was a little bit absent in checking in, uh, and so I almost went to, a con- uh, to our, first, uh, our first break early because Chen wasn't anywhere to be found, and I found out that he'd just come in in the nick of time and we got his views on this company called uh, Prophecy Coal that he likes a lot. But Chen, uh, the reason he was absent was because the equity market had apparently made a pretty sharp turnaround headed south well, it's actually up as I look at the uh, the market uh, right now. We are up in the Dow and the Nasdaq and all, but it was up a lot more before, and I guess it was a pretty abrupt turnaround. So this sort of brings me to the topic I want to ask Ian about. I want to get his view on the market. We talked about the uh, GAN cycles and the GAN um, periods of time of 2012 uh, for that because of the GAN cycles, but for many other reasons also. Uh, there's some people that are they're quite concerned about what might be taking place or what might happen in the markets and the various markets. So let's get right to it, Ian. What are you predicting for 2012? Let's start out with the equity markets. Well, the equity, you know, um, we're pretty uh, convinced uh, that we are going into an Elliott Wave 3 down mm. uh, in, uh, in, in the stock market. And, and, and we suspect that we may actually meander a little higher into March of this year, mm-hmm. um, simply because we think the euro will hold together until about then. But then you've got, uh, I think it's $16 billion of Greek debt due in that, in that time in, in March, and we suspect that uh, it'll be that uh, won't be, uh, that, you know, Greece won't, Greece won't be able to raise the money and, mm-hmm. and will probably exit the euro. And that will start to the, the sort of the whole system to sort of uh, collapse. The mm-hmm. equity markets worldwide to collapse because the euro will start to break up. And so, if we meander into March, we're we're pretty confident uh, that we don't believe that the May 2011 peak in the Dow will be taken out, which is 12,876. Uh, we will then start, and that is really a wave two. So in other words, if we look at the Elliott wave count, the, the Dow peaked in October 2007 at approximately 14,200. 
and then dropped into its wave one down into March 2009, where it made a low of 64.70. And then the wave two, uh, corrective wave up, was into May 2011 at 12,876. So we know that the wave threes are always the uh, the longest and the strongest of the Elliott waves. So we we can say with a great deal of confidence that the March 2009 uh, low will be taken out, and we're pretty convinced it will be taken out this year. Uh, where is it going to go to? Um, it's going to go substantially below uh, 6470. So we're going to actually borrow a piece from Robert Prechter, who we have a great deal of admiration for, and who has sort of his his work suggests that the wave three bottom will be somewhere around 2,500 on the Dow. Mm-hmm. And uh, we think that that may even be met this year. So it's going to be a frightening. Wave threes are always great in bull markets, and they're always frightening in bear markets. So if we get to 2,500 sometime this year, maybe by about November of this year, um, that is going to scare a lot of people. Then, of course, we get the fourth wave corrective up again, and then the final fifth wave down, which uh, we would suggest will at least hit our target of of 1,000, that fifth wave down, and possibly even go to something that, you know, like Robert Practice calling for around about 400 on the down. Well, um, so we're looking at a five at a five wave pattern here. Yeah, from from the top in two thousand seven. Elliott wave count, and mm-hmm. um, we're borrowing. In fact. I mean, I, I do use Elliott Way, but I'm not a huge expert on it. I've taken, mm-hmm. uh, I've read enough about it. I've actually attended uh, courses put on by uh, the practice group mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but we're, we're borrowing this. Uh, we're pretty convinced ourselves that this is the wave three that is coming. Uh, practice uh, saying that it is McHugh is saying that it is, and other Elliott waivers all are uh, attesting to that, that it mm-hmm. is the wave three down. So it is going to be a frightening wave down. It's going to be uh, go uh, significantly below the March 2009, uh, 64.70 low on the Dow. And, um, you know, we're saying maybe around 2,500 yeah. uh, will be the bottom. Now, if it... We think it could even be reached as uh, in November of this year. So uh, it's very fast, hard down. Well, that is definitely a frightening, uh, a frightening concept. It is certainly the words of Dr. Robert McHugh in the past, and he has called this a uh, potentially a nation-changing event. And it's certainly with that kind of magnitude, Ian. And you see what's going on. We talked about the uh, you you talked about the first hour of this show. The uh, you know the, the dissolution or the falling apart of the European monetary system, which could then uh, probably uh, carry over into the existing fiat currency system around the world that we've had uh, since uh, well, really since the Second World War, but especially since 1971, that has been uh, the breakdown of the Bretton Woods uh, initial Bretton Woods system. So that brings us to the topic of uh, well, let's talk about the dollar first before we get to gold. Because I think that where you and Robert Prechter may disagree would be on the dollar. And we're hoping to have uh, Robert Schilling 
uh, on this show uh, sometime in the near future. He is a deflationist, a very mainstream deflationist. Uh, in fact, expecting to have him on the show in about three weeks. And he is uh, he's a deflationist, but he's a strong dollar deflationist. I think Bob Prechter is, too. Uh, is that your understanding of Bob Prechter's position that he? Yeah, he's he, you know he he is definitely bullish on the dollar. Um, and where's and the disconnect there? Where, why are well, why are you, I, you, too- you know, and he, he, he's also pretty bearish on gold and has been for a long time. Well, I- he is, but I would say this though, Ian, that uh, in the discussion that you and I and he had on this show some time ago, what I realized about Robert Prechter is that while he's bearish on gold. He sees gold rising against almost everything else except the dollar. So, in a way, he's not all that bearish on gold either. And as I'm a mining guy, I'm looking for a metal, something I can sell that rises relative to everything else except the dollar, of course. But, but what is the, where is the disconnect, and why do we do some people see this differently? Why do you see it differently than well, the Robert disconnect Prechter? is? Uh, I, I think I've sort of already alluded to it at yeah. least at the, during the show. Mm-hmm. We're really seeing a parallel here between the collapse of the monetary system, the world monetary system, that occurred between 1931 and 33, and that's why for many years we've been forecasting that this the world monetary system would collapse uh, during this uh, long wave or Kondratiev winter. We've mm-hmm. we've probably been forecasting that for the last eight, ten years, yeah. anticipating that we would repeat. The collapse of the 30s. Yes, well, when I we think talk about not collapse, something we're not that's just talking about the euro collapsing. We're talking about the whole system collapsing, as it did in the 1930s. Every right. mon- every currency left the, world, the the monetary system. Every currency left the gold exchange standard system, and every currency came under attack from speculators who who effectively forced it out of the system. So we're pretty convinced that, uh, you know, none of these currencies are going to survive in their present form in this system. I mean, I think one of the things that people uh, really tend to forget about the world monetary system, it's a paper money system. And we've never, the whole world has never been in, in a paper money system before. And we know that historically every paper money system that's ever been devised has always collapsed because it's allowed governments to create too much of it. And uh, we've simply seen the same example this time around. Governments have created so much money because there's no discipline in paper. And that money is effectively debt. So they've created so much debt. So the whole system is now collapsing. So the whole world monetary system based on paper, we are convinced is going to collapse. And the dollar is not going to reign supreme with a $16 trillion debt. It's just Mm. impossible from our perspective. uh, Let me just ask you then, Ian, do you think that is where the difference is between, say, Bob Prechter's view and and some of these other deflationists? Well, he obviously feels that somehow the dollar is going to survive all of this. Yeah. But you know, we've written many times, it's the debt stupid, and the debt is taking down the currency systems of the entire world. Right. Oh, okay. So the dollar is going to, the dollar is going to collapse then, in your view? Right. All currencies are going to collapse. And people will demand an asset-backed monetary system? 
a gold well, back monetary I mean, system. You know, when you look at the, the world monetary system collapse between 31 and 33, and essentially everybody, the whole world trade system collapsed, and the world was, you know, went into a massive depression. Um, there was no trade because no one trusted anyone else's money to, you know, to be paid in that, in that particular currency. And as I said earlier, the United States was self-sufficient and everything, so she she didn't really care that much. She just went home and uh, had sufficient grains and foods to feed her people, and she had more than enough oil to uh, look after uh, the American people as well. So um, Britain traded with her at that what was then her empire, and uh, Europe, uh, Germany, and Austria sort of stuck together, and uh, Europe. You know, the northern European nations traded with each other and so on. And Japan got frozen out, so Japan became very militaristic. The United States cut Japan off her oil, and Japan basically uh, went around the world, you know, invaded countries uh, looking for natural resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we, uh... so I don't see that we're going to experience anything particularly different. But what I was trying to say, Jay, is it took a lot of time. So the system collapsed by 33. It wasn't until 44 that a new world monetary system uh, was developed at Bretton Woods. So, uh, you know, there was no monetary system in the world for, you know, there was a hiatus essentially mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. 44. Mm-hmm. So the whole, so everything, the, the economic activity ground to a halt to a great extent then. Right. Or, or did you have barter trade between nations? Well, you, you might, but I mean, you know, remember that the, the world economies have basically collapsed. So mm-hmm. um, the, tra- the world trade collapsed, you know, dropped by 80%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, and, and that's the kind of what we see is that there's just no trust of anybody's money. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so that eventually the whole system just grinds to a halt. Um, okay, you know, with, and, with respect to the dollar now, you're expecting the European um, Union to, a good chance that that will fall apart before the end of this year. Then where does that leave the dollar, and what's your timing for a dollar, uh, the dollar becoming a worthless currency? Well, I would, I would envisage that the euro will collapse uh, probably starting, as I said, in March of this year with uh, Greece defaulting. And, um, you know, and then that, that tends to have a snowball effect because it won't be, Portugal probably won't be that far behind, and then Spain and Italy, and then even France. I mean, the whole system is sort of so overwhelmed by the amount of debt that's, you know, in, in the European community that the whole thing has to basically has to collapse. Mm-hmm. In Germany, you know, it's not a paragon of virtue either. I mean, Germany has a lot of debt too. Yeah. But the... The whole um, once that once the euro collapses, as I said, the attention speculators will say, okay, you know, look at look at the United Kingdom. They've got a massive amount of debt, and they're creating even more debt. Um, why should it survive? And don't forget, during this whole system, the economies of the world start to really drag. I mean, do you think the Greek, with all the austerity that's been imposed on Greece, that Greece has a vibrant economy? No. It's a depression. It's an economy in depression. Yes. And so it's the same. It happens 
to all the countries, their economies uh, basically uh, collapse. And so their needs become very, very, you know, it's a matter of mere survival. I mean, people in Greece right now are looking merely to survive, feed themselves, clothe themselves, and house themselves. Mm -hmm. And and that's going to spread to other countries probably. Everywhere. um, Yeah. Uh, So... What does gold do in this environment then? Now we're we're going to measure gold against what though? I mean, if you're if you're talking about a currency that becomes worthless, then the price of gold could be infinite almost. Well, um, we know that in that kind of you know as paper monies or paper currencies start to collapse, uh, the demand for gold is going to uh, rise astronomically, and we know that the you know, the world mines only, you know, we only produce about a, at most 100 million ounces of gold a year. It's a mm-hmm. minuscule amount uh, to feed what we see as a, a massive demand. And so, you know, we're convinced as this, as the currency crisis really starts to take hold that uh, uh, the gold price will rise quite dramatically. Don't forget, the, the dollar will probably be like she was in 1933, the last currency to fall. Mm-hmm. You know, and because she's the reserve currency, the dollar's world's reserve currency is going to be much harder to, to affect that collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the collapse is already beginning. I mean, you know, we're seeing China and Japan just uh, came to an agreement whereby uh, they would pay in their respective currencies uh, for uh, goods that were imported or exported between the two of them. And mm-hmm. China's done the same with Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gaddafi wanted to sort of introduce a gold dinar and, and basically, you know, wanted to take uh, the U.S. dollar off oil. And you know what happened to him? Yeah, and we so know there is a slow, uh, slow erosion of the. Uh, the the dollar's role as the world's reserve currency, but it will, I'm I'm convinced, be the last currency to fall. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, gold's going to do exceptionally well in 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 that kind of environment. And and again, what we've done on gold is we've done an Elliott wave count, and we've used a guy that I've followed for years, uh, Al Field, who's out of Australia, and we've used his gold count. And Alf is talking for this. Uh, price of gold going in a wave three up. Now, we've mm-hmm. just talked about the, the stock market going in a wave three down. Sure. And so that's a very strong and a vigorous move up in the gold price. And Alf's target for gold is 4,500 on this wave three up. And then, of course, we have a corrective wave four down mm-hmm. and then, a, uh, then a, a wave five up. So he's got 4,500 on the gold price. So what we've done, we've We've taken the liberty of, of, of using Alf's work and saying, okay, the bottom on December the 28th of 1524 was the bottom of the gold price. So the wave one up uh, should take us to about 2885. And Alf has said then you get a 13% correction. So we've said, okay, that should take us to 2250. Mm-hmm. And then wave three of three, because this is... You know, yep. going in five waves up in this wave three. Mm-hmm. Wave three of three should take us to about thirty nine ninety five, and then you get a thirteen percent correction for wave four, which takes us down to thirty four forty, 
And your final wave up to meet Alt's target is 4,500 on gold. When's mm-hmm. that going to happen? Um, we're pretty convinced that wave one up to 2885 will, will, will happen this year. And mm-hmm. we're pretty, com- we're, we're fairly confident that even wave three of three up to just below 4,000 will occur this year. Mm-hmm. So we're extremely bullish on the on the gold price because we're extremely bearish on everything else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, it's good news. It's bad news. I, I guess it's uh, it's bad news because it means that there could be a heck of a lot of disruption in our lives. The way what we're used to living, the way we're used to living, it's hard to fathom what uh, these kind of numbers would mean on the on the equity markets. But perhaps the biggest, uh, most important thing. Yeah, uh, that we have to look at uh, the most important one of the most important markets next to the dollar would be the the bond market, the long bond market. What do you see for U.S. interest rates? And in well, you mentioned already, interest rates are heading higher. You believe that there's a contagion effect. Eventually, it comes to the U.S. Do you see interest rates rising dramatically higher this year yet? Well, it depends how fast the unraveling occurs in Europe, because Europe will be the the first. Uh, ball of wool that's going to unravel, and it mm-hmm. depends how fast that you know that occurs. If it takes the whole year, then the dollar and the pound will probably be looked at as safe haven currencies, right? Mm-hmm. People are looking, well, you know, where else do we put our money? Well, at least you know the the problem for Europe is it it can't you know each of these individual countries in the in the euro can't print money. Mm-hmm. You have to rely on the European Central Bank to do that. Yeah. Whereas the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, they can print money at infinitum, and we know the Federal Reserve has been doing that. So they can continually um, try to stave off the inevitable by creating even more and more money. And so it, it really, from my perspective, depends on how fast the unraveling occurs. Yeah. Generally, when things start to collapse, Jay, it's been my experience that they collapse very fast. Well, they can and do, and I, of course, it's not only the European Central Bank that's printing money, but we uh, we had the sound bites from a former vice president of the Federal Reserve uh, saying that, in fact, the swaps that are going on now between the Fed and the European Central Bank is, in effect, a bailout, a loan of sorts from the Fed. So the Fed. Uh, it may be already starting its QE3 in order to try to keep the whole system together because certainly, and I'm sure you would agree with this, that if, well, in fact, you've been stating it, that if uh, when, Europe, when Europe collapses, it's going to have a contagion effect uh, on, on the U.S. Let's, uh, I'd like to ask you about silver. You've long been known as more of a gold bug than a silver bug, but not that long ago you were warming up a little bit to silver. What are your thoughts on silver? Well, I, I, I'm warm on silver. But I'm piping hot on gold, um, simply because gold, you know, historically has been viewed as the money of last resort. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we if we start to look at, you know, the countries that are buying gold right now, we know that Russia's buying gold. We know that um, little countries like even Thailand, and and we know that China's buying. Huge amounts. I mean, it's not going to tell us how much it's buying, but the imports through Hong Kong are record levels into China, and China is the biggest uh, gold-producing country in the world, and none of that gold is allowed to leave the country either. So 
there's a massive amount of of gold going into China. So, but they're not buying silver. They're buying gold. They're buying gold because of its role as that money of last resort. Um, however, we're pretty sure that uh, if gold gets to 4,500, uh, silver will be pushed up uh, as a secondary monetary instrument. Um, you know, and it, it's played that role once. Uh, once uh, England went on a gold standard system, effectively uh, uh, introduced by Sir Isaac Newton. In the 1700s, once Britain went on a gold standard system, silver was always in a secondary monetary role. Um, your lawyer, your smaller coinages were, you know, minted in silver, so that, for instance, the dollar, you know, was in a gold standard system. So you had a twenty-dollar gold piece, a ten-dollar gold piece, a five-dollar gold piece, but your one dollar was silver, your fifty cents was silver, your quarter was silver, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so silver will have a monetary role, but we don't see it as the, uh, uh, you know, as the way that, the, for instance, the central banks of the world are returning uh, to gold as a, a sort of a backing for their currency. Mm-hmm. Ian, there's uh, so much more to talk to you about. I wanted to get to base metals, uh, talk about uranium, about oil, and if we have a collapsing dollar, certainly it would seem that those real materials could go up in value relative to a collapsing currency. Uh, 30 seconds, can you just address that comment? Um, well, I'm very bearish on those because I'm very bearish on the economy and I'm, I'm a deflationist. I think as all this, uh, as, as the economies of the world basically go into this depression that's uh, typical of the Kondratiev winter, overwhelmed by the debt, the demand for all the base metals and uh, oil and so on is going to drop dramatically and prices as we know, in the in the 30s, dropped uh, very dramatically for all these things because no one simply wanted them. Yeah, but of course, in the 30s, the dollar remains strong, or it's, it gained in purchasing power. You see the dollar collapsing, though. I, I could see the dollar or gold uh, gaining against everything else big time. But but uh, do you really think that those prices would fall against a dollar that becomes worthless? Well, you know that all the currencies effectively in the '30s became worthless. Uh huh. Okay. You have to understand that they all, no one trusted any of them. Yes. And uh, you know, so that uh, and everybody, particularly in the early '30s, was running to gold, wanted to own gold, and um, simply because the banking system was collapsing, and you know that they were that's what forced Britain off the. Off gold exchange standard system, everyone exchanging their pounds for British gold, everyone exchanged their dollars for American gold. I mean, the run to gold was huge in the 30s, and we essentially see the same thing uh, occurring. And uh, how it's going to be paid for, I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of unanswered questions, but certainly you've answered a lot of mine today, Ian. You've got a lot of a lot of wisdom, a lot of work that goes into uh, to your website. Tell our listeners how they can avail themselves to your work. Well, we do have a website. Uh, it is a subscriber a website. It's uh, longwavegroup.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but there is a lot on there, I think, that people who don't want to pay the $250 uh, can get out of it as well without you know, uh, getting everything that we write mm-hmm. um, on, the, on the site. So, so is that $250 a year, Ian? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's not a that's a very modest price to pay. I would say for the for the depth of uh, of knowledge and wisdom that's there, folks, uh, you might want to just check it out. Uh, Ian, thank you very much again for being well, with thank me you, Jay. today. Really great to hear from you. Always, uh, always, always uh, very worth the time. Very much worth the time spent uh, with you. Thank you very much, and uh, hope to see you in Vancouver sometime soon. Okay, Jay. All the best. Take care. Folks, don't Thanks. go away. We're going to be right back here. Uh, after the break, we're going to be talking to Amir Adnani, uh, who is uh, very well known uh, for his uranium uh, company, but he's also involved with a company called Brazil Resources. We're going to ask him to tell us about that company as soon as we come back on the other side of the break. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at w www.rypatchgold.com Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again Amir Adnani, uh, who many of you will remember as the president and CEO of Uranium Energy. Uh, he's done a very remarkable job there uh, bringing that company into production, producing uranium, being one of the first, uh, I guess the first uh, company to produce ura- new producers of uranium in the United States for some time to come. Uh, but now he's using his uh, his entrepreneurial skills uh, in this gold uh, exploration company uh, called Brazil Resources Trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol BRI. Trades in the United States, you can buy it under the symbol BRIZF. 39 million shares outstanding, 41 million fully diluted, but uh, with the current outstanding shares, $1.40 uh, approximate price, it gives it a, an approximate market cap of $55 million. Welcome, Amir. Good to have you back. Thank you, Jay. It's great to be on the show again. Good to have you. It's really uh, always always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you uh, you have had a very successful uh, record in the past, certainly with uh, Uranium Energy, and uh, you, you are very able to articulate your your company's story. So I'd like you to do that now for uh, for Brazil Resources. Uh, tell us a little bit about why Brazil. You know, Jay, a few reasons that, to some extent, have to do with uh, some of the, uh, some of the, let's say, um, uh, rationale and thoughts that we've applied to the business model of uranium energy. And one of the, one of the concepts that's uh, that was at the heart of uranium energy's business model was focusing our acquisition and exploration activity in jurisdictions and areas with considerable past. Uh, and historic information and exploration activity. This helped minimize our exploration risk, and it also has helped us fast-track to production, as, as you very well know, having, having covered UEC for many, many years now, mm-hmm. that within, really, within five years from starting the company, uh, within five years we were able to achieve initial production, one of the newest uranium producers in North America, and that was strictly driven by the fact that we focused on projects that were in a good jurisdiction where there was mining taking place, there was historical information available, and we went after uh, not necessarily uh, projects that were um, going to have a very high CapEx requirement. Mm-hmm. And I've been bullish on gold for a long time as an entrepreneur uh, in the resource sector. It's, it's uh, tough not to be bullish on, on gold's fundamentals uh, in the current environment that we've, that we've seen. But, I've, but I felt that as when it came to starting a new company, you really had to have a competitive edge and understand and do something that was different. And what I find remarkable about Brazil is really two things. Number one, the country has been so focused because of Valley and other sort of bulk commodity-focused companies on exactly those things, bulk commodities. Mm-hmm. Very little has been spent in terms of time, attention, and dollars in doing gold exploration and development. Yet that element of historic information, historic production, the so-called data that I was just talking about that we, that we applied in uranium energies business model is very visibly 
there in Brazil in the form of artisanal miners or what they call in Portuguese garimpeiros. Mm-hmm. These artisanal miners, Jay, are it's quite a remarkable story. For, for centuries, not decades, centuries, artisanal miners have been mining uh, gold from very rich gold veins throughout Brazil. And obviously in, in recent years of rising gold prices, these, these people have become quite, quite rich. I mean, you just imagine mining gold with uh, very basic equipment at $300 an ounce or $200 an ounce. is a very different exercise than doing it at today's gold prices. But these, on, these, these artisanal miners are your best uh, exploration indicator. They're highly effective in finding gold. And almost where you find these rich gold veins at surface or in the soft rock and the saprolite, uh, there are uh, much more interesting zones at depth, 100 meters, 150 meters at depth, that these guys simply don't go to. I mean, with mm-hmm. very basic techniques that they employ, it just doesn't make sense to go that deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, this has truly been one of the, one of the most uh, effective ways of looking for gold resources in the past few years. Is there have been a number of success stories uh, in Brazil uh, with gold discoveries and projects that have been uh, that have been identified uh, by using artisanal mining activity and historic info. So I, I like Brazil for this reason, and I like the fact, Jay, that it's it's really uh, a progressive country. The economy is doing really well. That the political system is the most stable in South America. Uh, and uh, President Dilma Rousseff has really continued with many of the policies of uh, former President Lula that really created the prosperity that we see in Brazil today. But that wasn't enough, obviously. That All of those reasons are still not enough to form a company. For me, the other two critical points were, again, taking a couple of lessons out of the playbook of UEC. UEC, as you very well know, was always built also around the foundation of a strong technical team. Mm-hmm. And what was available in Brazil was... Um, an opportunity to team up with uh, some very competent individuals, geologists um, that had formerly been uh, involved at senior levels. In fact, one of our directors, one of, the, one of the people very involved with the company, was formerly head of exploration for Kinross in Brazil, mm-hmm. and, a, and a Brazilian, and not uh, Canadian or Australian geologists or expats working in Brazil, but a very deep understanding of Brazil, having worked with a senior company, so we were able, Jay, to assemble a technical team, an exploration team that collectively has been responsible for discovering over 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil. Mm-hmm. That was one, another key foundation, was assembling the right technical team. And last but not least, uh, an opportunity to partner up with a Brazilian bank. Now, this was unique. Typically, as you know, in the gold or resource exploration business, there's, you don't find an opportunity at a ground level to partner up with a bank. Mm-hmm. Here we had an opportunity where a Brazilian bank, Brazil Invest Group, which is a very prominent group based in Sao Paulo, one of the oldest merchant banks in Brazil, uh, was keen and interested to be a part of this venture. And uh, from the very beginning and, and, and today, they own 10% of the company. Mm-hmm. And the chairman of the bank, Mario Garnero, who's really a famous entrepreneur in Brazil, very well known, and regarded, sits on our board of directors. This is now really the foundation of this company, the fact that we have, although we're a Canadian company and Canadian listed, we have a very strong uh, Brazilian face and a Brazilian uh, content to our company and our story because of this bank's involvement. We have uh, uh, the opportunity to work with an exceptional technical team that you can point to and say, look, from a quantitative basis, these people have discovered over 10 million ounces. And 
uh, best people to repeat success are those that have really enjoyed commercial success. Mm-hmm. And with all of this, we can really focus on those areas that have a high density of past exploration and mining activity with these artisanal miners. And for all of those reasons combined, that's a long answer to your question, but these are kind of the foundation reasons as to why uh, I was uh, enthused and excited to uh, get, uh, get this company off the ground and see how Brazil Resources can do. Well, I think, uh, Amir, I must say that uh, the ability of an entrepreneur or a, a leader of a company is to bring is to recognize the talents of a very diverse group of people, which you need a lot of diverse talents to bring in a mining project, as, as you know very well. And you work very well with people. You're able to recognize that and bring them on board and, and have them work seemingly in a very harmonious way, which is uh, which is no small task. Uh, what about though? Speaking of harmonious relationships. What about uh, the local miners? How do you maintain good relationships with those fellows? Because if you're going to say, move aside, fellows, we're going to get the really rich stuff that you guys helped us find, how do you work them into the equation so they're not disgruntled? You, you, you must have good relationships with the local people. So how do you propose to do that? Well, Jay, it's not easy, and that part of it, it does, does require time and patience. And frankly, looking at... Uh, looking at these artisanal miners and talking about, uh, let's say, all the, the positives that goes with having their presence, uh, we should also be um, highlighting the fact that it does also mean dealing with the challenges of when you develop or decide to develop a project into a mine. Mm-hmm. You do have to work very diligently and patiently uh, with uh, uh, the, if there's the need, if there's a, quite a high number of uh, such uh, such miners or perhaps... Uh, uh, little uh, communities formed around them. You have to work very diligently around this. And companies that are mining gold, Canadian companies that are mining gold in Brazil today or are proposing projects are dealing with this reality uh, uh, all the time. And, mm-hmm. in fact, even with the World Cup, the Soccer World Cup under Brazil and Rio de Janeiro, they're even dealing with this issue, not with artisanal miners, but mm-hmm. with these um, uh, shanty towns, for lack of a better term that uh, need to be removed. But, but in many cases, uh, uh, Jay, what happens is that if you need to move these uh, very small populations that we're talking about, these people are living in very bad conditions. There's no drinking water. There's no real infrastructure. These, mm-hmm. towns have just, these little communities have been formed around some basic mining activity. And so mm-hmm. the, the, the type of community relations and work and, 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 and effort you put in uh, uh, with them ends up being a win-win scenario, and that yeah. they end up in, uh, in with, with with benefits and perks that ends up being uh, basically a, a, a better life and better resources, yeah. uh, and for the company to develop a project which ends up employing people and ends up being a net benefit for the whole thing. But that's where again, you know, just highlighting the experience of the team when you when you consider. Um, the amount of permitting that we've been through, it, uh, I know it's a different business, it's a uranium business, but really at the end of the day, uh, gaining a social license, understanding stakeholder relations, it really doesn't matter if it's gold in Brazil or uranium in Texas. It, it, understand, it, it requires having that understanding. And yeah. so you know, lessons we've learned there in that business can be applied down here. We brought on board, and, and one of the individuals involved with uh, Brazil Resources, the president of the company, Steve Swatanjay, is formerly the global head of exploration with BHB Billiton. Mm-hmm. And so when you consider the experience of this team, you have individuals that were pre- previously leaders 
at companies like BHP, at companies like Kinross, and at these big companies, you understand not just exploration, but you understand how all the factors that go into a good exploration project can t- turn it into a mine, having right. that understanding. Right. Right. And by the way, these days, it's not just about a big resource on the right grade, right? It's about community relations. Yes. So having that understanding is really key, but that's where also I think having Brazil Invest, this bank that's involved with us, really positions us favorably in that they also Ab- give us absolutely. that extra Ab- local knowledge and local relationships that need it, give us that access. Absolutely, Amir. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, there's so much more to talk to you about. Uh, we'll have to have you back on sometime in the near future. Uh, tell, tell our listeners where they can keep track of your, of your uh, efforts here. Uh, well, Jay, very quickly to wrap up, you can always visit brazilresources.com uh, to uh, track our developments. We have uh, over $10 million cash on hand, and this is sufficient to see through a, a current drilling program that we have underway uh, in uh, the project areas that we're focused on in northeastern Brazil. Uh, we have uh, an active acquisition strategy to uh, expand the company's project base. Uh, we've gone from 5,000 acres of projects when we IPO'd a year ago to over 300,000 acres uh, as we exited last year. So we've been aggressive with acquisitions. We have uh, two drill rigs turning right now and, um, and more than enough capital with over $10 million on hand to see through these efforts, which you know, overall we're looking at basically a $2.5 million exploration effort. So very well financed, Jay, and okay. uh, very good institutional support. About 40% of the stock is already institutionally owned. Okay, uh, And um, uh, should be a very good year for BRI and love to come back and Talk more about it next we'll, time, Jay. We'll have to do that because we, we're out of time now and we just can't talk any longer. I've got to go to commercial break, but we'll have you back again. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back to wrap up today's show with Ted Ohashi. Don't go away. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www. 
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Hard times and good times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I have with me today uh, Ted Uhashi, who's not been with me for quite some time. He's a consultant with Investment Pitch, uh, a firm that I've also been affiliated with uh, and uh, still am affiliated with. Uh, welcome, Ted. Thanks, Jay. Nice to talk to you again. Good to have you back. I, uh, I know you wanted to highlight one company that you thought was quite interesting. You want to tell our listeners uh, what that is? I think it's Deerhorn Metals. Yes, I, it's it's a company that I uh, just uh, did an article on in Resource World magazine in the December issue. Um, the company uh, is a mining exploration company, and the reason I like it is uh, for two or three reasons. First of all, with small companies like this, you don't often get management uh, that has done it before. Uh, Ty Doherty, who's the president, um, his last company he sold for $175 million, which was quite a bonanza for all his shareholders. So he's been to the big game, and, and he's done it before. Uh, it's also a historic property in British Columbia. Uh, it was uh, originally explored uh, by TAC and Golden Knight uh, that were preparing to put it into production as a gold and silver mine. Um, subsequently, um, Deerhorn got a hold of it, and, uh, and now uh, they've come up with... Uh, some of the highest grades of tellurium known to man, uh, and as well, uh, the property was originally a tungsten property. So uh, they've got a couple of uh, these strategic metals. Uh, tellurium is used in uh, solar panels and, and electronics um, and um, uh, has been uh, rising in value. Um, the permitting is, is all in place. Uh, it includes permits for a 10,000-ton-a-year bulk sample, uh, the infrastructure is there. It's, a, it's an inland waterway. 
so they can barge the material uh, to road and then subsequently to rail. Uh, they have the ability to finance. Uh, the company is, uh, is, uh, is very strong in the financial side and has uh, good institutional representation amongst its shareholders. Um, they just finished publishing all of the results for the 2011 uh, program, um, and they came up with uh, uh, some very good values. Uh, it, it's interesting. This is a, uh, a gold and silver property, and yet uh, uh, the attraction um, is uh, tellurium and tungsten, so uh, it's highly unusual. Um, I expect they'll be updating their 43101 report based on these drill results, um, and uh, and we should be seeing that uh, around the end of February. So, okay. Um, okay. This is Deerhorn DHM on the Toronto Exchange is uh, is one of my favorites. Okay, thirteen, fourteen cents, thirteen million dollar market cap, more or less. Yeah. Uh, so it, well, it, do you consider this uh, just with a few seconds left, uh, Ted? Do you consider this the value here to be uh, gold and silver, or do you are you looking at tellurium and and uh, Tungsten. What I what I really think here, uh, Jay, is that the end game is going to be this company taken out uh, by somebody uh, in the solar panel industry uh, that wants an assured supply of tellurium uh-huh. uh, from a relatively safe locale. Okay, well that's interesting. Then it could be a gold byproduct product uh, company. That's right. That's right. Or well, you know, okay. the, other, the way they look at it is uh, tellurium will cover all the costs of mining. Uh, so they'll get everything else for free. <clears throat> okay. Well, I, it, it does. I mean, it's not all, but it's it's a fairly advanced project. Then I guess it, it's it, it yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, from a bulk sampling point of view, uh, uh, they could be uh, shipping uh, uh, year after next. So okay. Well, it's a very interesting uh, uh, prospect. I'll, I'll have to try to, if I can find the time, take a look at it. Ted, thank you very much for sharing that with us, folks. We are out of time. Just to remind you, next week. Uh, we'll be back again. My guest next week will be Bob Unger. He's a, a litigation attorney, uh, but more importantly, I think, uh, is a truth seeker. He's got some very interesting ideas, no doubt some that will be very shocking to some of you. But uh, this program is not uh, uh, is not unknown for its uh, shocking ideas. Uh, we, uh, Of course, we want not just to shock, but we want to find the truth. I want to thank uh, my uh, uh, engineer, Justin Jackman, and Tacey Trump, my producer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.